The following is for information purposes only and should in no way be construed as investment advice. Today, I am joined by Gareth Evans of Progressive Equity for a conversation with Jonathan Satchel, the founder and CEO of Learning Technologies Group. LTG is an aim-listed software and services supplier to the corporate training and people development market, and since its IPO in 2013, has grown strongly by the pursuit of a successful organic and acquisitional growth strategy in the market for people and talent development. Jonathan shares a fascinating personal journey into the industry and how his acquaintance with the media entrepreneur Andrew Brody at a time of illness acted as a catalyst to the formation of a business that today has 5,000 employees and a market value of £1.3 billion. In today's episode, we learn how refining the work of others and developing a successful M&A model can deliver value how both products and services are needed to meet customer requirements, and how the great resignation and the metaverse are important factors for the relevance of talent development in the post-COVID labour market. Please enjoy our conversation with the maverick, Jonathan Satchel. Hi, Jonathan, and thanks for joining us today. I'd just like to kick off by asking you about the prehistory of learning technologies. I know you acquired Epic in 2008 and then listed the business in 2013. I'd just like you to talk through the journey that took you to the original acquisition and then onto the public market. So really, we go back to sort of mid-80s when I would argue I got my first job where I was selling computer systems in London and really cut my teeth on an understanding of technology and solutions and how they could be applied to customers' needs. And I did that for a few years. And then in the early 90s, things weren't so easy in that industry. The Gulf War had arrived. The economy was in uh, tatters. And I moved on and actually started my own business. And it was involved in video training for accountants and their continuing professional development. So I fell into this sort of training world by accident. That then morphed on to a management training video business, which I bought in Manchester in the late 90s. I turned that into an e-learning company in the early 2000s without actually any external capital. So we did that pretty carefully. And I kept that going and growing until sort of 2005, 2006, where I had a period of ill health. So I sold that. And when I came back from that, I was approached by my great friend, Andrew Brody, who um, said to me, let's look at doing something together. Now you're feeling better. And I found Epic. So uh, basically, he gave me a remit to go out shopping for a business to acquire. I looked at quite a few and we had a few failed attempts. And then I found Epic and uh, it was in some difficulty and I was invited to go and troubleshoot it. And I agreed with the chairman of the public company that owned it that uh, we would like an option to buy it if we liked it. And after a couple of months, that's what came to happen. So in the middle of 2008, just as the global financial crisis was creeping up on us, Andrew backed me in buying Epic and taking it private. Then ensued a couple of tough years, actually, because obviously we were in deep, dark recession in 2009 and 10. In a way, I suppose it's much better to try and 
restructure a business during that time because you cut hard and really make sure that you optimize the way the business operates. We successfully achieved that. And by 2011, the business was in fine fettle and growing nicely. Did a couple of years of that. I was beginning to get sort of itchy feet saying to Andrew, you know, what should we do next? And we decided not to do a trade sale. It, it felt it felt like we were giving it up too early. And so we knew we wanted to carry on the journey. And that really meant that we would become a consolidator. We had a very high regard for the fact that we were operating in a very fragmented market with lots of opportunity for consolidation and acquisition. So we then made the simple decision, or wasn't that simple, but we made the decision, do we finance this by private equity or public markets? And we chose the latter. And then that sort of final decision was, well, we don't really want to IPO and uh, sell off quite a lot of the business at this stage. We don't think it's gone on the journey far enough before we want to, to take money off the table. So we did what, of course, is now very fashionably called a SPAC. We did an early version of that. We actively went and found a clean cash shell on the AIM market, and then we reversed into it. So um, in November 2013, Epic became Learning Technologies Group inside a cash shell. How did you meet Andrew. And what was it that gave you the, I guess, the confidence through that period to take the leap on Epic and make that decision? Andrew and I met in something like 1986, actually on a tennis court up in, in Hertfordshire near where he lived. I just moved there and I was looking for a game of tennis. We just hit it off, although he was 25 years older than me. I immediately obviously realized he was a, a very interesting and successful businessman, although to be clear, he had not become what he would describe as the entrepreneurial phase of his career. He was still very much running a business for someone else. But I wanted to surround myself with successful people I could learn from, and he certainly was one of those. And so we just became good friends. You know, I remember him telling me he was leaving Walters Clear and going out on his own and buying a business and so on. And from 1990, I watched that whole story unfold. So I've, I've had a ringside seat of the amazing achievements that he's made. When I actually had a stroke in 2005 on the top of a mountain, so 38 years old, I was, oh, wow. I was pretty crock for a while. I lost my left-hand side and it took me a while to get rid of that paralysis. So I spent a couple of years in proper sort of self-determined rehabilitation. And he came to see me and just said, look, you know you're going to get yourself out of this and I want you to have something to look forward to and think about which I thought was really wise, actually. And he said, let's buy something. And we agreed some criteria and, and how we would go about it. And I started looking at that as a project. That's how we came about doing it. You mentioned that you looked at some other businesses before you settled on Epic. Could you just describe sort of in, in general terms the type of things that you were looking at, perhaps why you rejected some of them or why that they weren't right for you and why it felt that Epic was the one? So if you think about my background, I understood a reasonable amount about technology. I'm not a coder, but I have a reasonable, you won't baffle me with the BS of, of technology very easily. I can hold my own in the conversation. Gareth can give it a good try. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I find, now we get into the AI world, I find that a bit more difficult, I must admit. And also technology excites me, it interests me. So it was always going to be a factor. And, you know, let's face it, everybody, by the early 2000s, we were all, all uh, or mid 2000s, we were all believing that technology was going to be revolutionary. The internet had firmly taken hold. And if you think about it, we were in the, iPhone, the early iPhone era. And although we didn't know it, we weren't that far off tablet computing and further advances. So I was excited by all of that and then marry that with the other instinct or experience I had, which was training. 
the old modality of classroom and video and so on and so forth. But I had a good understanding of the training market. Andrew brought a passion for recurring revenue. He had bought subscription businesses and really, really liked them. And so those were all factors in our discussion about the type of targeting we'd do. So you've got Epic. You bought it in the teeth of the financial crisis. You struggled to knock it into shape and you then decide to reverse it into the public market. You're distinguished not just from having a SPAC at that time or the equivalent of a SPAC, but also just that decision to go the public route rather than maybe go the private equity route where this, I think then maybe not quite as much as now, but there's plenty of capital and people interested in consolidating interesting technology-led markets like this. Was that something that you looked at and considered, or was it always something about being a publicly listed company that attracted you? To preface my answer, you must appreciate that I had the benefit of Andrew's experience here. Although I was very much part of the decision-making process, he had a far wider understanding and experience of these situations and the right way to do things. So we did debate whether to go private equity. And I, I suppose in very simplistic terms, we felt we would have less control. Although, of course, we have a great respect and regard for corporate governance and meeting shareholders' expectations on the public markets, I think the day-to-day operation control, I sense, is greater for the board of directors of a public company than it is for that which is owned by a single private equity investor. So we felt that that was the right thing. There was never any question, given Andrew's background, that our corporate governance was going to be very strong. And therefore, we felt very comfortable about going on the public markets. And of course, he had already got sort of 10 years experience with RWS. I think RWS placed in 2003. So yes, literally 10 years experience. And he just came to me in the summer of 2013 and said, I think we found our solution. And he had spoken to Numis and they had this on the shelf cash shell, as it were. And it felt like it would all neatly work together. So um, that's what we did. I've heard you say before that your skill set is refining the work of other people. And I hope I'm not misquoting you here. No, no, you're not at all. Ra- ra- rather <laughs> than being an innovator yourself, resonates that philosophy. I guess what's the secret source of being able to identify these creative businesses, these entrepreneurial businesses, and refine them, as you term it? It's not all refining as in improving and optimizing the performance. Yes, we do that. And I'm proud of how much we achieve in that regard. But when I say refine, I think the primary aspect is bringing things together, melding things to achieve more than just the sum of parts, you know, very cliched phrase. But what we set out to do is we looked at this market and we said, let's think about what the challenges are that the customer faces. And learning and development It's horribly complex. It's very disparate because you've got so many different types of intervention. You know, you've got instructors standing in a classroom, you've got e-learning, you've got systems that monitor people's performance, that give feedback about them, that do succession planning, that recruit people. Just if I list that great tally of different things that are going on, you can immediately feel how complex it is. But every single one of those, even more so today, by the way, than when we embarked on this, but every single one of those aspects is a very sort of judgy situation for the employer. You know, employees look at their employer and they say, am I being developed? Am I being invested in? And I don't mean that rudely to the employees. I mean, it's quite right that they do that and they hold their employer to account. Effectively, what we said was there are loads of really good organizations out there focused normally on one aspect of this. And why don't we think about assimilating 
hopefully the best of those. I mean, you know, one can't always achieve the very best in each segment, but let's buy very high quality companies with great solutions and assimilate them together and then offer them up to the market in a way that means they can buy one or multiple facets of a solution from us. I guess there's a dilemma of the degree to which your offering is centralized or decentralized in terms of having the right environment for creativity and innovation, but also the right environment where you can present yourself in the best light to your customers. Yes. So it's complex. And what we don't do is we don't go out under a unifying brand like LTG, for instance, and go to the market with a complete multifaceted one-size-fits-all solution that does everything. Because frankly, it's very, very unlikely a customer would buy that. We therefore have always taken the sort of, if you like, the federated approach, most akin to WPP. I have a huge admiration for what Smartisol has done. We looked at that model quite distinctly, and we were even lucky enough, funnily enough, to be commissioned, completely coincidentally, to do some commercial acumen training, e-learning for WPP. So we learned even more from working alongside them to do some training for their staff. And we really did sort of, not slavishly, but thought that that model worked rather well. I appreciate that the markets may have thought that WPP has got it wrong in more recent times, but that's not to do with the delivery model. It's to do with whether they were a bit behind the curve on digital or not. I still believe having separate organizations run by leadership teams who observe and respect the need to deliver their P&L gives you lots of diversification and safety. And then what you end up with is, I mean, we've got 15 uh, well, we've done 17 acquisitions, and we've probably got about 12 different operating brands that go to the market because we've consolidated some of them. But 12 brands don't all work together. There are some very strong bilateral relationships, and they know who they are. So we encourage cross-selling and group selling. Account managers work very closely with each other, and they go to market together where appropriate, or they introduce each other's customers to each other. So that's the way it works, and we find it works well. Funnily enough, since our acquisition of GP Strategies, we now are taking the view that we will also implement a centralized group selling team as well, because we think that there is an opportunity to do both, but it will not usurp what we've got already. I wonder if I could ask a slightly broader question about the software and services model. And, and obviously, a lot of investors love to see software high margin revenues. They love to see recurring revenues, as you mentioned, that Andrew Brody had sort of steered you towards in, in the early days. But a, a number of companies, I think, over the years have sort of struggled with you know, trying to sell software, but obviously customers frequently or very often want services as well. How have you managed that? And how have you managed sort of to scale the business so effectively, given that mix and the inherence of tension between those two? I look at this, first of all, from, for goodness sake, let's design an organization rather logically that meets customers' needs, meets the market needs. So I look at it from the perspective of what's the problem the customer has. And let's be really realistic here. No customer goes out and buys a software solution and says, I'm just going to do that. It's going to be beautifully ring-fenced. I'm going to buy it from the software company, and I'm going to have a few people implement it for me. And it's going to become a solution in my organization. And it's never going to need any services or ever touch anything that's physically delivered by people, it's just going to remain a ring fence piece of software. If we implement our performance management system, our performance management 
solution, it rather cleverly engages with learners and managers. And over time, it develops an understanding of the learners' needs, their competence, their lack of competence in certain areas, and it builds a learning program. Now, the software can do that independently. But the moment that learning journey is designed and built by the software, the rubber really hits the road with people. And you need to start having a services aspect to the way you deliver that from the learning and development team. The other aspect I have to say, which I feel so much more confident about, is I agree with you. People who are generally orientated towards creating products and therefore using technology and focusing on development teams and product roadmaps and so on, and creating what we would now call a sort of traditional SaaS business, their economic thinking is utterly counterintuitive to that of a services model, which is very much about utilizing your chargeable workforce in the most effective way, making sure they're not underutilized, making sure that they're not over-servicing and not charging for the extra work. There are a whole different set of economic principles that you have to apply. And remember where I came from. When we bought Epic, Epic effectively was a services company that used technology. We made learning websites, for want of a better term. You know, we made custom learning content. So our product that was technology, but it was made by people. I've heard you talk a lot about the ongoing consolidation opportunity in the learning market. I mean, it seems to be the underpinning of your strategic success. How do you define or think about the market you're in? Because you've added sort of adjacencies along the way and you've morphed the business, the group very successfully. It's interesting. I agonized for quite a long time in 2018 when we considered making the acquisition of PeopleFluent because that was the first time we were straying outside the very specific sort of mission swim lane, if you like, of just delivering learning to corporate employees. That was our original mission. And PeopleFluent added a lot of performance management software. And that meant that we were straying into those adjacent sectors. And we did. We thought about it long, hard and carefully. I'm delighted we did it because it just opened up so many more opportunities. And learning is the underpin to all of that. It is the commonality across all of those aspects. And so I was very happy that we did that. I can't see us needing to or necessarily wanting to broaden away from the current breadth of our mission, which is the learning and development of talent within an organization, because there's so much to do. There's so much to go for. And I think that focus, coming back to the question you asked me earlier about software and services combination, we're designing to just meet that need. GP Strategies was a gargantuan and audacious acquisition. You know, we worked on that for a long time. It's tilted us back towards a higher proportion of services revenue for the time being. It's his only for the time being. Our next large acquisition within the next few years will definitely be software, and that will rebalance the revenue streams more significantly. But you know, we're very comfortable that we now have a truly international service delivery capability with a very large, super high quality organization. And of course, talking back to the point about margins, we were able to use shareholders' money incredibly efficiently with some debt to buy a business that does a great job at the front end of delivery, but didn't do as good a job of focusing on its own efficiencies in the back office and so on, and also in utilization, et cetera. So it wasn't making a great margin. It's about 5 or 6% EBIT margin. And the market knows that we're going to make a very big difference to that margin. So I'm excited by the possibility it's given us to buy that business on a very efficient basis. Do you have a vision for what the group can be like in 10 years' time? How do you think about the long-term future of the business and the growth path you're on? 
I always hate answering this question because I think that people will either listen and think arrogant or mad. <laughs> <laughs> I really do, genuinely. Because, you know, I, I've been immensely privileged but shocked by the journey we've been on so far. You know, I've had the chance to work with some fantastically talented people that have got us here. And I pinch myself on a regular basis. But actually, I have to say, I, I just, I don't know, I'm 55 and I, I just don't seem to be able to run out of ambition. And, you know, after the GP deal, I have to say, actually, weirdly, because it was just so big, and I think I'm just being respectful to how big it is, I haven't yet set another target other than what I mentioned just a moment ago, which is I know we will buy either a series of medium-sized software businesses or a large one by using the financial firepower that we're creating in the business now. So I think when the market realizes the sort of profitability that's going to come through from the refined and transformed GP alongside a growing LTG, I think we will gain a situation where we really do have some incredible financing ability to look at uh, a valuation horizon, which is far in excess of that, which we've looked at before. So, I mean, obviously, we've just spent $400 million on GP, but I'd like to think that we'll be shopping in a price range substantially higher than that when we look for our next big acquisition. Well, it doesn't sound mad or arrogant so far to me, if that's any consolation. On a pro forma basis, we're a sort of early $700 million revenue organization today. Okay, that's just crunching the two sets of numbers together. I absolutely see a billion on the horizon, a billion dollars of revenue. I mean, that doesn't feel like a big leap for me. It's less than half again. And of course, that won't be all organic. That will be inorganic as well. Can it be dramatically more than that? I suppose so. I don't think we're going to stop making acquisitions. I don't think we're going to all of a sudden change the model and say, hey, this is now just an organic growth story. And I do have a, a slight disdain for the attitude that I think has emanated mostly from Silicon Valley, where if you're growing fast enough, it really doesn't matter if you're losing money. I think it, it inculcates very poor discipline into an organization in its early formative years to never worry about cost. And I think those organizations, however good their product is and however good their retention and their net revenue retention and blah, 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 all those lovely measures they like to quote other than EBIT or rather loss. And I'm looking forward. I have my eye on hmm, a handful of really nice product companies who've got super products, who've grown nicely, but I don't think will make a good fist of that journey into profitability. And I think at some point, and we've bought one already, I mean, Reflective was sold to us by TPG, who had thrown $100 million at it and couldn't make it make money. You know, within three months of me buying it last January, it was profitable. Was it about that business, and come on and talk about GP strategies as well, that gives you that ability to see what the previous owners hadn't seen or weren't able to act upon? We think really carefully and hard about the operating model. We do zero-based budgeting, almost in diligence, but as soon as we own the business for sure. And we ask ourselves the question, do we need this role, this resource, this function, this piece of software, this premises, you know, we just go for the very basics. Reflective was a perfect example. I mean, we could just see so much waste. I mean, egregious waste. And you just think, golly, you know, how can that have happened under private equity ownership? Because that's pretty unusual. But, you know, the executive team was very focused on soft, fluffy targets and not focused on reality. With the most recent acquisition of GP strategies, is there anything fundamentally different about 
what you see there. Are there any other problems, are there issues that you've got to deal with that you haven't seen in any of the previous acquisitions? No, not at all. It's just a matter of scale. You know, we are talking about a very, very different size business. 4,000 people, $500 million of revenue, 29 countries. You know, this is a proper grown-up operation. The existing executive leadership team is very much with me. We were lucky, actually. You know, obviously, I have a huge respect for the trauma and tragedy that COVID has caused around the world. COVID actually was fortunate for us in that we would have done the GP deal in March of 2020. Literally, I think it was March the 11th, we were slated to go and do our war crossing meetings. And of course, that got kiboshed by the virus. Actually, the reason we were lucky is that We'd already done a year of, not diligence, but a year of getting to know them and then ultimately diligence with them. We were very keen on buying the business, but it still had quite a bit of debt. It had a lot of non-core operations, and it needed to make a few senior executive changes that we would have done. But actually what happened is when we pulled stumps on the deal, they did that themselves, to themselves. They installed a new chief executive who I'd spent quite a bit of time with, and I felt we were very philosophically aligned. And he embarked upon that journey. And of course, COVID enabled him to make a number of changes to the business that the business accepted because of the challenging times that we were all in. So when we re-engaged towards the end of 20, I'd had the benefit, I, I know him well, and I'd had the benefit of sort of chatting to him and us giving each other tips and tricks about how we were dealing with the crisis. And I had a, effectively a free of charge ringside seat as to watch how they coped with the crisis, which they did admirably, actually. One of the things I've been thinking about sort of ahead of our discussion was the state of the labor market, particularly in the US. Sort of you read this term, you know, the great resignation, Unemployment is at record lows, but people are choosing to opt out of the labor market, either permanently or for a while. What you're doing in the whole area of personal development and developing of talent for employees and employers has sort of more resonance and a wider implications all of a sudden, or is that just me becoming aware of it for the first time? Not at all. There's no question it did exist beforehand, Jeremy, but the COVID and the pandemic in general has, if you like, let Pandora out of the box. There is no doubt that people are thinking much more about themselves, about what they really want from their lives. And of course, anybody thinks about not just their work environment, what they're going to do, whether they feel fulfilled, whether they agree with the purpose of the organization and they're aligned with it, but they also think about how they're going to be developed and whether they want to acquire new skills and go perhaps and do different things within their existing employer or, or elsewhere. All of that plays into the need for exceptional learning and talent development capabilities in an organization. The really interesting thing is from about 17, 18 onwards, we were having business development conversations where we were evangelizing the concepts of this. You know, the fact that to retain great talent and attract new people, you've got to make sure that they know that there's a really good development story for them. It's not just about the compensation package. You know, personal development is vital and it mustn't feel like that tick. Thou shalt do this training to ensure you're compliant with our organization's needs. That's not development. That's just regulatory stuff. Development is saying to a person, where do you want to go? What do you want to do with your career? If you want to become a managing director of a division, then this is your competence gap. These are the things you need to do. This is pure learning and knowledge and theory that you need to undertake. And these are the experiential things you'll need to do. And we're going to make a plan to help you 
achieve that journey. That's a really proper development conversation. You know, an employee is going to leave that conversation feeling great about themselves, that their organization recognizes their innate talent and wants to invest in them. It's a marvelous retention mechanism. It really is it's proven to work very well. We were evangelizing those sorts of stories to organizations before the pandemic. They don't ask the why, they say, how do we do it? Just bringing that back in, in terms of your sort of ongoing and longer term growth and reflecting the changes that have happened across the market because of COVID that you were describing earlier. Do you think there's a shift in terms of what customers are looking for in as much as e-learning and remote learning has always been very effective for all the obvious reasons around efficiency and, and quality of what can be provided and people learning at their own pace? But do you think in terms of training and team building and evolution, there might be a swing back towards more face-to-face contact? And as someone who's not shy of running a services organization alongside some very strong technology, do you think you might pivot slightly more towards that if that's what customers are looking for? Absolutely. We're already there. We call it blended learning. and That's the general term in the industry for it. Just putting that into context for you. If you're trying to train a new manager, the theory of how they have a difficult performance management conversation with a member of staff, you used to do the whole of that in a classroom and do a role play at the end when you taught them how to do it. Now, what we would do is we'd do a half hour or an hour of learning over the theories of the way you talk to them, how you introduce the conversation, how you demonstrate that you've thought about the these things carefully and you're being fair about the way you consider things and all of those theoretical elements of how you conduct a difficult conversation. And then we would take them away from that theory component that they've done via e-learning. We'd do an assessment on them just to make sure that they've understood because there's no point in putting them into a, an expert environment until they've proven that they actually understand the stuff. And then you'd go with an expert, a coach, who would almost immediately role play with you and give you some challenges and become that sort of challenging member of staff on the other side of the table. And you think about it, it's so efficient. You learn in your own time, or not in the company's time, but you learn at your own pace on your own device. And then you take that knowledge and you apply it and learn how to apply it properly with an expert. That's the best way possible to do this stuff. Will the e-learning component be taking place in the metaverse in due course? Is it, <laughs> are we, are we going to be doing this three-dimensionally? And, you know, you listen to some people, it's almost inevitable it's, or it's already happening. I don't know. It is already happening. Okay, so uh, I'm afraid I'm going to be pretty opinionated here. I'm sorry. Um, That's fine. I find it so annoying when people use technology, normally new Fandango, you know, flashy technology inappropriately for the sake of it, just gratuitously. So I'll give you a prime example. We have for donkey's years, I think the first one I built was in the late 90s for Mercedes. We have often built what we call simulations for conversations with a customer in the automotive industry. And so you have this customer sitting in front of you on a video and they say something to you, oh, tell me about the feature of the sat-nav. And you get a little bar on the side of your screen giving you three different answers that you could choose to make to them. You choose an answer and that then creates a response from the video customer, okay? And we call those branching scenarios. So you can literally meander your way through the scenario and you can be getting it right or wrong and the learning tells you how you've done at the end. They're really effective. They're quite complex to make, but they're very doable. And they are totally acceptable to do on a normal screen with a set of headphones. You do not need virtual reality. And I have seen so many of these sorts of programs that have been turned into virtual reality. And it's utterly gratuitous. The technology almost gets in the way and to no benefit. Now, let me tell you where virtual reality really works well. Anglo-American, as we know, one of the world's largest mining companies, had 
some very serious health and safety concerns, particularly in South Africa, and they approached us about three years ago. And we built, first of all, a very hard-hitting, proper emotionally-hitting drama video for them, pure video, about 20 minutes. And we had a meaningful effect on reducing health and safety incidents because Everyone who watched it realized that they couldn't be relaxed or laissez-faire about, you know, wearing hard hats and following safety procedures, etc. So it had a good effect. A couple of years later, they said to us, look, we're really pleased with that. We would like to develop a program where we can deal with issues that are incredibly dangerous to simulate in real life. Can we create a safe environment to do it? And we said, yes. So this was to deal with an explosion in a mine and clearly not something you can simulate easily but a jolly important thing to learn before you go down that mine shaft. So we created a virtual reality program, of course, completely safe environment to practice things in, but realistic enough. What you've got to do is cause people to suspend their disbelief so that they actually think they're in there because then you'll get their instinctive innate reactions. We've done this and we're, <laughs> we're even a bit more Machiavellian. We don't even let the learner know that they're actually going to experience a tragedy, a disaster. We tell them they're going down to calibrate and regulate some instruments in the mine. And so their mind is thinking that's what the virtual reality program is. And then as they're beginning to work on those instruments, we set off an explosion and three different things happen. Now, either rip the goggles off in total sort of horror, obviously session over, or they panic. And you, if you sit watching someone with the goggles on, it's really interesting, but they interact and they either then interact properly and get control and do things well, or they interact badly and panic. But both of those things are very good learning points for them. And this has been fantastically well received and very successful. That is using technology and, you know, the metaverse obviously is talking about augmented reality and, and so on and so forth. That's using technology in its most appropriate way. Do I think that the metaverse is going to be a very significant factor in the way we develop ourselves? Absolutely, I do. I think the idea that we can have an overlay of information whilst we perform our normal lives, because it will just be in our field of vision, howsoever that's achieved, but you know, presumably by some form of glasses or a wearable of some description, and also an audio input. And voice control is becoming so sophisticated now that we won't have to use our hands to input to a keyboard or anything like that. I think that the possibility for learning and development in that regard is endless. So effectively, what you're then developing is what we would call just-in-time performance support. If you're a gas boiler engineer and you're having to service or repair 15 different types of boiler, You'll sit there in front of the boiler with your goggles on and an earpiece, and it will know what the boiler is, and the technology will say, okay, do what you need to do. So, yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting as it develops. You've shared this great journey with us of coming to the stock market, building the business, and the opportunity that you've articulated that you see ahead of you. What have you changed your mind about while you've been on this journey, and do you think about the world differently? I used to think I valued people in my early business days when I ran a 20 or 30 person company and I controlled everything. You know, I thought it was really important for me to be over everything and blah, blah, blah. By necessity, of course, when you're a 5,000 person company and very, very much earlier than that, I realized I couldn't and I was forced into 
effective delegation. And if you like, I was dragged along that journey from being a control freak to being a truster of other people. And it opened my eyes, actually. I think that's probably the biggest learning I've had from the journey I've been on, and it will just stand me in good stead going forward. I know everyone says it's a hackneyed old phrase, but I work really hard to find people to surround myself who are genuinely better at something than I am. And it's not hard to be that, but I'm just surrounded by people who've got great talents and skills. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope we can have a chance to catch up again in the not too distant future, but thank you very much. Well, thank you for being interested in my story. It was genuinely fascinating. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of In the Company of Mavericks, please subscribe at our website, inthecompanyofmavericks.com, where we would appreciate your feedback and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. 